We'll uh, get things started here with a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll get uh, started with our study of Revelation. Let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we just ask that you would guide us and direct us here in this class and in the other classes that are meeting right now, uh, and Father, in the uh, service to follow. We just pray that your Spirit would control us and, and that you would be pleased with everything we do. And Lord, if there's anyone who uh, is here today who does not know Christ as their Savior, we pray that today would be the day that they would come to you. Uh, so Father, we just uh, again ask for your guidance and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. We're going to look at the first eight verses of Revelation chapter 7 today. This is the sealing of the 144,000. This is obviously one of the most kind of famous passages of Revelation. It is also one of the most difficult and debated passages in the book, probably in the entire Bible. Uh, I know it feels like I say that to you guys about every other week, but that is the nature of Revelation. Uh, you know, that's just kind of the way it is. But this is, uh, this is one that uh, has completely frustrated a great many Bible scholars. Um, so we're going to try to take the approach of really taking it at its, its, its most direct, kind of simple way. I think sometimes we get ourselves in, in trouble by overly complicating some of these things. So uh, we'll, we'll try to take a more, little bit more direct approach here today. Uh, turn to Revelation chapter 7, and like I said, we'll look at the first eight verses. I want to start by looking at verses 1 through 3. It really kind of naturally breaks down into two sections. So let's, let's tackle the, the first three verses uh, to begin with. It says, after these things, and of course we've just gotten done looking at, at the opening of, of the uh, sixth seal um, and, and all the kind of physical disturbances that, that, that take place with, with that. Uh, and so uh, he says, after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. All right, begin with here, uh, let, let's hit one of the, the, the first questions that's debated when we read this passage. Did these people think the earth was flat? Uh, it says that, that you know, the, the angels were standing at the four corners of the earth, and so that kind of gives you the idea of, of kind of like something that is flat and has four corners. So a lot of critics of the Bible actually use this passage and passages like it to say, see, look how wrong the Bible is. They thought the earth was flat. Well, the reality is this has nothing to do with whether the earth is flat or round. It's just a figure of speech. Okay, it was, it was a common figure of speech used uh, in the ancient world. There's actually several verses in the Bible that point to the fact that, that the Bible doesn't really say that the earth is flat. Real quickly, look at Job chapter 22, verse 14. And, and I'm reading the New King James here. 
Uh, but look at what it, it, it says in, in uh, 22.14. It's speaking about God. Thick clouds cover him so that he cannot see, uh, and, and he walks above the circle of heaven. Uh, you know, Job was being accused of thinking that God was kind of out of touch, that somehow he was so far up in the heavens that he couldn't see what was going on. But you notice how it's, it sees uh, you know, the, the earth and the heavens as a circle. Uh, you know, it, it, it's suggesting a, a globe, not, a, uh, not, not flat. Uh, also, over in Isaiah chapter 40, you see something very similar. Isaiah 40, 22, it says, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who, stre who stretches out the heavens like a, a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Again, the idea of the circle of the earth. And so the, you know, the, the idea that, that the Bible teaches that the earth is flat is simply false. The Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, you know, but in the ancient world, there were probably uh, cosmologies, understandings of the universe, where people did think the world was flat, I'm sure. But that doesn't mean that necessarily the, the Jewish people or the Bible taught that. Uh, and so it does seem to, to be that they thought there, that the earth was circular. Um, just let me read a, a brief note here uh, from Paige Patterson's commentary uh, on this. Uh, as he kind of talks about this. He says, But here the expression is nothing more than a figure of speech similar to many others that, though scientifically incorrect, are a part of vocabularies even today. Such, for example, is what is intended with the, the phrase, the sun setting. We talk about the setting of the sun, but yet the sun never sets. The earth just rotates. You know, and so we, we kind of, we don't think about the world as being flat when we say the setting of the sun, and that's certainly not what we mean, but that is what it would be if you actually took it to its logical kind of scientific conclusion. So it's just a figure of speech. It's just a figure of speech for, you know, the sun is out of our sight. And here, it's a figure of speech for the entire earth. You know, the angels are standing at the four corners of the earth. It means that they are covering the entire earth, okay? The, the, uh, what is going to happen is going to be earth-wide. Another thing that we see here is, is they are holding back the winds of the earth. Now, this is, it's funny how things work out so well sometimes because what a perfect day to talk about the destructive power of wind after the last couple of days, how many of you had to pick stuff up out of your yard in the last few days? Yep. Yep, me too. We, we, we've all, uh, probably most of us at one point or another have seen something like uh, 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 live through a hurricane or a tornado. Uh, you know, you've seen how destructive wind can be. Probably everybody's seen the pictures of, uh, like from the Midwest of like a, a, a hurricane or I mean a tornado blowing like, like a piece of straw through a telephone pole or, or into a tree. That's how powerful wind can be. Well, wind has always been associated with great power and also destruction. Uh, the wind, you've probably heard like phrases like the winds of change or the winds of destruction. Humankind has always seen wind as a, as a force for 
destroying things and, and, and a force for, for vengeance or, or for, for power. And so that's kind of the picture we see here. Uh, you know, these angels that are at the four corners of the earth, they're, they're around the earth, and they're holding back the winds, it says. You know, it, it reminded it reminded me of that old phrase, uh, like, how many of you have ever watched somebody holding back a pack of dogs? You know, or somebody even trying to walk like a group of dogs, and they're holding on to them and holding on to them. You know, that old phrase, release the hounds. You know, that's almost like the picture that's being painted here. These angels are there, and they're holding back the winds. Wind is a, is a powerful force for uh, destruction. It's, a common, it's used commonly for judgment. And these angels are holding it back. And it's not the idea that uh, like these four angels are out there on their own trying to stop God's judgment. That's, that's, you know, that's the kind of nonsense that shows up in movies that Hollywood makes about the end times. That, that's not what's happening here. They, these are angels. You notice it says that they were g- given the ability to hurt the earth. They, they, they're given the ability. They're the ones that God is going to use as a part of his judgment to punish the earth. But they don't do it until it's God's time to do it. They're holding it back. They're like holding on to the reins. You can't go anywhere yet, not until it's God's time. It's interesting, one of the great truths to this is that God is still sovereign over all of his creation, even in the midst of the terrible times of judgment. God is still in control here. You know, nothing is going to happen that God will not allow. And so these angels are holding it back. In fact, we are introduced to a fifth angel. If you look at verses 2 and 3, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out in a loud voice to the four angels to whom it it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the, the, the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. A fifth angel shows up, sent from the east. Literally, it is sent from the rising sun. Again, in a lot of ancient cosmologies, you know, the, the east and, and the area that, uh, that the sun rose was, was seen as the area where God was from. So the whole idea of this is that they're coming from God. This angel is coming from God, coming from the rising of the sun, coming of, from, from, you know, we would think of it more along the lines of coming from heaven or, the, or, or God's dwelling place. Coming from the east and, t- and, and coming kind of, you can almost see coming around the earth, you know, crying out to these other angels, hold on to the winds. Don't, don't harm anything yet. We have a task to do first. In his hand, he holds a seal. Now, much in modern times, especially unlike the internet and kind of modern, uh, you know, kind of conspiracy theories and stuff like that. There's so much about like the mark of the beast and the, and the seal of the mark of the beast. We've got to be careful of technology. We've got to you know, watch out for microchips and stuff like that, which honestly is mostly just nonsense. But you know, the, 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 the Antichrist is not the only one who's going to give a, a mark to someone in the end times. Here, that is what God is going to do to seal his 144,000 servants. 
He's going to use a seal of some sort. Now, in the ancient world, had all kinds of seals. The Babylonians were probably the first to really, uh, you know, kind of uh, perfect the idea of a seal. They would make these, these cylinder seals, uh, and, and they would put up, upraised marks on them, and then they would roll them on clay to, to kind of write things or to, to make seals that, that, that would kind of, seals a lot of times show ownership. You know, someone would be sealed in order to show ownership uh, in, in some ancient military guilds, especially if they were religious military guilds, soldiers for a faith of some sort. They would be sealed with a brand. What, what sealing more, more often meant in, in the world of John's day would be a, a, either a brand or a tattoo. The whole idea of something stuck under the skin, that, the skin that nobody can see, but somebody can scan, being the seal, is completely foreign to the Bible. It is a seal. It is a visible sign. That is what it's meant to be. It is not meant to be some kind of electronic thing. So you do not have to be afraid of electronics. That's nonsense. People trying to sell books that you don't need to buy. It, it, it will almost surely be some sort of visible seal when the time comes. A brand or a tattoo. There, you know, other kind of seals existed in the ancient world, uh, but the, like I said, the most common, especially kind of at this point, would be a brand or a tattoo. Uh, and, and people were, were, you know, oftentimes slaves were branded or were given tattoos to, to show that someone owned them. It's interesting that the same Bible word that's used here for servants, he says, Sir, you know, we're going to seal the servants, that is the word for slave. God is basically saying, these are people that belong to me. I'm sealing them that, you know, because they belong to me. Now, seal, sealing not only showed ownership, but it also showed people were often sealed for protection if, 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 let's say a king had his seal on someone, like one of his soldiers, that meant nobody better touch that soldier. If somebody does, they will answer to the king and the whole weight of what that king can bring down on them. So sometimes they were sealed for protection. Sometimes they were sealed, as I said, for service. Uh, it not only showed ownership, but it also showed, hey, these people are mine. They got a specific task for me. You leave them alone. So those are the kind of the ideas of how seals worked. So we see here that, that, that in the hand of this angel, he has the seal, it says, of the living God. Now that in itself is amazing. Uh, he has God's seal in his hand. He, you know, this is something coming directly from God. God is the one that's in control of this. It's interesting it uses this phrase, uh, the, the living God. That's not a phrase you would necessarily expect to see. It would have been easy enough just to say God. But there seems to be a stress here by John that there's a difference between the true God and all the other gods that are out there. And especially at this time when things are, everything is just going to go crazy, he wants to, to stress that God is a living God. All the rest of them are fake gods. 
You know, they're made of stone or they're made of wood or they're made of whatever. They're, they come from the minds of human beings. They have no reality. But this God is the true God. He is the living God. He is alive. And it's his seal that's in the hands of the, the angels and, and, and this angel. And the angel is going to go out and he says, look, we, the earth can't be harmed until I seal these 144,000. Now that also stresses something, that this seal probably has something to do with the the judgment that is coming. These 144,000 are going to be exempt from the judgment that's going to come. The seal will probably give them protection over the judgment that God is going to bring on the earth. That's kind of the position of most scholars because of that connection. We We can't let the judgments happen until the seals take place. You guys get the picture? So we see here uh, that these four angels are given the power to harm. You know, they are going to be the ones that are going to carry out this task. Kind of the last thing that I, I want to point out here is it, it, it says uh, that, that the ceiling is going to be on the forehead. You know, in, in, in some time down the road here, we're going to get to the Antichrist sealing, you know, putting his seal, putting his mark, the mark of the beast on people uh, on either their foreheads or their hands. You know, why that choice? Well, we see here that that's where God is going to seal his people also. That was kind of a common uh, place that that sealing was done uh, to people in the ancient world. Even the Jews themselves uh, like, like very, very religious Jews would wear what is called phylacteries. And they would wear them uh, like around their head and so it would hang down onto their forehead or they would wear them on their hands. You know, and that was, it, it, and it contained like, like parts of the law in it. It was, kind of, it was a, kind of the symbol that in front of their eyes all the time and, and it, right at the front of their mind all the time was God's law. That's, that, that was kind of what it was it was supposed to say, or right at hand all the time. So that was, that, that was the common areas that were, were often sealed, and it was very symbolic of, hey, you know, this, this is the for, at the forefront of what is going on. So God is going to seal his people uh, right up front, like where, where everyone can, can see. And that was a very common place that, that these seal, uh, sealings took place. Sounds atrocious to us, doesn't it? You know, that's where the differences in the cultures and in the times and history, you know, kind of come about. Like for us to think of someone like, you know, branding us on our forehead, that you can't get much more repulsive than that. But in the ancient world, that was accepted and fairly common amongst people in certain religions, certain sects, uh, like I said, certain military guilds, things like that. That was a very common, common thing. So, um, is as crazy as it seems to us that was not wouldn't have been so crazy to the first readers of this now let's get down to the business of the 144,000 verses 4 through 8 uh we get really into the 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 most uh hotly debated part of this passage let me read verses 4 through 8 and i heard the number of those who were sealed 
144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the, uh, excuse me, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. And of the tribe of, of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Twelve tribes, 12,000 people per tribe, 144,000. Now, what is so controversial about this? Well, pretty much everything. Um, one is there are irregularities with the listing here. Actually, several irregularities with the listing of the tribes. Let me, let me read again something from Dr. Patterson to you to kind of lay out uh, the, the, the irregularities that we find here. says, first, the tribe of Dan is missing. You guys notice Dan is nowhere on there. Dan is one of the, the tribes of Israel. And by now you may be saying, oh, wait a minute, if there's 12 here and Dan's missing, that means there's got to be more than 12 tribes. There are. That's part of the, uh, of the issue, and we'll get back to that in a second here. So first, the tribe of Dan is missing. Whereas the tribe of Levi, which is often omitted because of the priesthood belonged to it, is included. Second, Joseph is also included, but one of his sons, Manasseh, is included, whereas the other son, Ephraim, is omitted. And Ephraim is almost always in the list of the tribes. Okay, So there's three irregularities right there. Finally, the order is interesting in that Judah rather than Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, is listed first. Usually the way the listings of the tribes go, the firstborn is always listed first, and Reuben was the firstborn. So there are four irregularities about the listing of the tribes right off the bat. Why is Dan missing? Why is Levi there? Why is Joseph there, but one of his sons is not? Because usually Joseph is omitted because Joseph produced two tribes. So why is this different? And then finally, why is Judah listed first? Some scholars have become so befuddled by this that, that literally they will say this is unintelligible to them. They, they cannot, there's nothing about this that they can figure out. Uh, you know, people have almost just thrown up their hands and given up uh, trying to figure out what is going on here. Like why, you know, why is, 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 is God doing this? Um, my personal opinion, they're probably reading a bit too much into it, uh, trying to find too much meaning in it. Judah is pretty simple. This probably gives it a messianic or a Christian bent to it because we know that Christ came from the tribe of Judah. And so he, you know, Judah here is listed first. Even though he was not the firstborn, he is the preeminent because that is where the Messiah came from. 
going the whole way back to the time uh, of, of Joseph, you know, God basically prophesied that, that one day the sword, or uh, you know, the crown would be in Judah's hand, the scepter, and, and, and would always be in the hand of Judah. So the kings of Israel were to come from the tribe of Judah. So Judah, even though it, it is not the firstborn, is really the preeminent tribe. So it's easy enough to figure out why Judah is listed first, especially in the last book written in the Bible. You know, it's stressing the, the messianic, uh, you know, and, and, the, and kind of the Christian view of this. The Messiah came from this tribe. You know, this is where Christ came from. And so that's easy enough. Levi was, the reason Levi was usually left out of the listings of the tribes um, you know, Levi was left out of the, 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 the property, uh, you know, doling out the property of the promised land. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but when Israel came into the promised land, God kind of divvied out certain sections of the promised land, you know, a section to each of the, of the tribes. Levi was never given one because Levi was given the priesthood. The priesthood was considered their portion. That was their inheritance. And all the other tribes would take care of them, you know, through the, the, the temple tax. You know, the, the taxes that were given to the temple would take care of the tribe of Levi. So Levi, their inheritance was the priesthood. Everybody else's inheritance was land. You guys get the idea? Levi, that's why Levi's usually left out. But here Levi is, is placed in the picture. Now, there's, there's a lot of different ideas. I don't know that any of us will... We'll get it completely right, but one of the ideas is that that kind of in in, in with Christ now being here, uh, the priestly duties no longer are going to be needed, and so Levi will not carry out those priestly duties anymore. You know, I, I don't know if that's really the reason or not, uh, but that's certainly one possibility. Uh, you know, of why Levi is added here, where normally Levi would not be added. It is not the only time that Levi is in a listing. And here's one of the other cool things. I, I think it's kind of cool. It's frustrating for Bible scholars, cool for people like me. Um, all the different listings of the tribes throughout the Bible are all slightly different. And so what it shows is the Jews used those listings and God used those, those listings to accomplish different things. They were malleable. There is more than 12 tribes. You know, and, and, and so if you're going to make a listing of 12, and 12 is important because it's very symbolic. One, there, you know, 12 were given the, the land, prom, you know, the, the divvy, divvying up the land, but also 12 kind of carries like a, a symbolic nature of, uh, of kind of, uh, of, of perfection, you know, completion. So they didn't, it doesn't sound quite right to say there's 13 tribes, does it? Sounds better to say there's 12. You know, and, and, and so they always list the tribes as 12, even though there's more than 13. So that means every time they do a listing, somebody has to be omitted to make it 12. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's another. At one point, Simeon is left out. You know, Joseph is usually left out and his sons are in his place. You guys get the idea, okay? So in this place, Levi is there uh, and Dan is out. Now, Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim. 
Like I said, Joseph is usually not listed because his two sons are listed in his place. But in this case, Manasseh is listed and Joseph is listed and Ephraim is left out. Is there anything nefarious in that? Like some people, and this is where the, where the problem, I think, comes. People try to read all kinds of different things into who's left out here. You know, the funny thing is, though, Manasseh was known as a place of great idolatry. But yet Manasseh is here and Ephraim is not. Um, and none of, the, none of the tribes were, were you know, got, could get away from the idolatry that, that plagued Israel. Uh, Manasseh was certainly one of the worst. Dan was one of the worst. That's why many people think Dan is not listed here. Um, but the reality is, it, with the listing of Joseph, uh, it really kind of covers both of his sons. You know, the, he, that's the reason he is almost never listed, is because his two sons are. So the fact that Ephraim is left out, but Joseph is listed, really covers Ephraim anyways. You know, and, and so there's, no, there's nothing kind of nefarious to see here. Um, you know, I, I think, again, people probably make a bit a bit too much of this. They had to leave somebody out. Uh, now, Dan, uh, you know, there's all kinds of ideas. One, one is that, uh, that, like I said, it was because of idolatry. Uh, and, and Dan certainly was known as, as a tribe that probably had more problems with idolatry. And so that's a possibility, that maybe Dan is left out because of the terrible idolatry that took place in the tribe of Dan. Um, another possibility is that Manasseh and Dan had ceased to exist by this point. There are some that believe that those two tribes had ceased to exist completely, and therefore no one, you know, there was no record of who was from Dan or from Manasseh. In fact, that's an argument that some people, and we'll get to this uh, here in a little bit, because this is going to be the main thrust of what we'll talk about today, um, who are the 144,000? Are they really Jews, or do, or do they symbolize the church? And one of the arguments that people who uh, say they symbolize the church, one of the arguments they make is, well, no one knows who, the, you know, who are from what tribe today. There are no tribal distinctions, which is kind of a ridiculous argument, because as one commentator I, I, I read said, well, if God can number the hairs on your head, I'm sure he can figure out who's from what tribe. And so, you know, it's not like we have to do it. Uh, so it's kind of a silly argument, especially, you, know, you wouldn't expect that to be the kind of argument that come from Bible scholars. But honestly, some of what I've read in the last few days was pretty embarrassing, to be completely frank. Uh, people, I mean, people jumping through all kinds of hoops in order to try to make their kind of theological position work. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, we, we all do it, folks. We all have to be careful of it. So, you know, it, it's just kind of a warning to us all, uh, you know, it, it, we, we'll go to great lengths to make things look how we want it to look sometimes. So, you know, the, the, some say that, the, that these tribes had disappeared, but there's no actual evidence for that that I'm aware of, and one, it really probably wouldn't make a difference anyways. So that, that probably doesn't really have anything to do with it. Um, one is... is uh, an, an ancient writer named Irenaeus, about the middle of the second century, looked at the fact that Dan was missing here, and so he postulated that, that the Antichrist comes from the tribe of Dan. Now, that's been roundly rebuked through the years because 
that's kind of where he got his whole argument from, was that, well, Dan's missing, that means the Antichrist must come from there. But as we spoke about earlier, uh, you know, the, really it's better probably to understand the Antichrist as being Gentile than being Jewish. The arguments for him being Gentile are far stronger than him being Jewish. Uh, and so again, you, you get kind of the nature of where some of the, these discussions have gone on this. The reality is we don't know and, and probably can't know. Uh, you know, and, and when we kind of uh, devolve into all these kind of crazy discussions, we just kind of make things, make things worse. Um, like I, I told you guys before, one of the reasons I like, I've kind of gravitated toward Paige Patterson's commentary is because he kind of doesn't go a lot of the direction of a lot of this kind of, kind of speculation. So uh, let me read something he says here. He says, others have conjectured that Dan and perhaps even Ephraim are omitted because they ceased to be tribal units, as I just told you. They simply died out, and by the time of the writing of the New Testament, they are not included in the listing because no Danites and Ephraimites uh, remain. The problem with this view is that Dan once again, and, and this is interesting, now listen to this, Dan once again is included in the tribal allotments for the millennial kingdom as provided in Ezekiel 48. Ezekiel 48 talks about the different tribes that will be in the millennial kingdom. And guess who's there? Dan. So it can't really be that Dan has disappeared. And by the way, it kind of points to the fact that there's really nothing nefarious going on here. Somebody had to be left out and they just chose it to be Dan at this time. Maybe because of his idolatry, but it's not like God kicked them out of the, uh, of the people of Israel. They're going to be there in the millennial kingdom. You know, so it's, it's not, <laughs> probably not quite as much as we make of it. It says, in that particular case, the usual Old Testament practice of including both Ephraim and Manasseh as the sons of Joseph is followed, eliminating Joseph his, his, himself and, and omitting Levi because of the further priestly functions of the Levites in the millennial temple. So even though no priestly functions was going on at the time, the Bible does speak of priestly functions going on in the millennial temple and Levi carrying out those functions. So like I said, a couple of the arguments that people make for what's happening here, if you just read what the scripture says about what happens in the millennial kingdom, those arguments just kind of go out the window. So there's probably nothing you know, that we need to read into here. They just needed to have 12, you know? He goes on to say the, the only appropriate conclusion to these difficulties is that while one can account for Judah being listed first, one cannot know precisely the mind of the Spirit in the choice of the remainder of the listing. Conceivably, a far simpler explanation can be found. Possibly as a punishment for its role in idolatry, Dan is excluded from the 144,000 Jews that are uh, specifically sealed during the tribulation period. But members of the house of Dan are saved during the tribulation. And thus, as is characteristic of the millennial goodness of God, they are reinstated in the kingdom era. Joseph is noted in the place of his son Ephraim, and Manasseh is kept to replace Dan, a tribe that does not have the benefit of the sealing. Whether this explanation or other, uh, or, or other more complicated ones, or no explanation of uh, now known is correct, is impossible to know. What is clear is that 12,000 Jews from each of these 12 tribes are sealed during the days of the tribulation. 
So like he said, you know, his explanation might work, a more complicated one might be right, or none of the ones that anyone has ever, you know, put out there might be right. There's no way we can know. But we do know God seals 144,000 during the tribulation. Now, this gets us to the main issue of this passage, and one that we are going to spend the rest of our time talking about. Who are these 144,000? There have been two ways of interpreting this throughout the history of the church. One is that this is the church presented in the language of Israel. That these 144,000 represent the church, but they just use the language of Israel in order to do that. In other words, it's symbolic. They they seize the church as the new Israel. And we've talked about this a little bit before, kind of what is, is often called replacement theology. That the church replaces Israel in, in, in you know, God's economy. Okay? God is done with ethnic Israel, essentially. So that's one idea. Another idea is that these are literally 144,000 Jews. And that you know, idea ta- you know, takes this passage in a much more literal sense. Commentators are all over the place. I think I've read five or six common six, I think, this week about this. And they are all over the place. It all depends really on a couple things. One, um, right after the 144,000, we're going to talk, this is going to be the bulk of what we'll talk about next week, the second half of this chapter. You see a multitude of people from all, all races, all tribes, all tongues that are there before God who have gotten saved during the tribulation. Are they a different group than the 144,000? Many commentators think that they're the same group. And they look at it kind of like, uh, remember when we saw, uh, when John saw, was told that the Lamb of God was coming and he turned, or told that the Lion of Judah was coming and he turned and he saw a lamb that had been slaughtered? How things were different when he actually saw it than what it sounded like at first? That's how some scholars take this. That, you know, they're told 144,000, but then when they actually see it's a multitude from all over the earth, from every tribe and tongue and, and all people, and it represents the church, okay? So that's how, and that's probably the majority opinion that's out there, because, you know, in this kind of, in the other kind of uh, factor that, that really goes along with this is if you come or if millennial, but you come from you know a lot of post-tribulationalists, you know they see the church as going through the entire tribulation. So in their minds, this is the church. So if you want to make that work, then you've got to do something with these hundred and forty-four thousand Jews. They have to become the church, even if it doesn't make much sense. Okay, and so that's where the jumping through the hoops I alluded to, starts taking place. The other position is, you know, really pretty straightforward. Now, it doesn't mean there's not problems with both positions. Uh, There certainly are difficulties with both positions. Um, 
But let me read again a little something for you here. Try to make this a little, a little clearer. And this is, again, Dr. Patterson's view of this. Uh, he says, But when all else is considered, as is so often the case in an interpretation of the book of Revelation, the decision re- resolves itself into a question about whether the 144,000 are to be taken in a straightforward literal sense or whether they are to be viewed figuratively. In the latter case, while representative of real individuals, the number itself and the, the identification of each of the 12 tribes of Israel is a reference only to, to the degree that 144,000 as a multiple of 12 would suggest the number of the saved as being the complete or perfect number, and the tribal identities assumed to be nothing more than a highly stylized way of indicating that these are the people of God. That's the position that, that you know, people who claim it's the church, that's what they take. You know, it's just symbolic. That's why 12 is used and things like that, all right? Um, let me uh, read this next part. Yeah, let me, let me just go ahead and read, read this next part now. Um, well, let me hold off a second. Talk about this a little bit here. Um, some of the problems with that, however, there, there are many kind of problems with that issue. One, there seems to be a clear distinction between these two groups. I've just read down through the 144,000. I want to jump into next week's now, and I want to read verse 9 for you. And it says, after these things, after what's taken place that we've just read, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. And we can stop there. Uh, That kind of covers what I think we need to talk about. If you read that, do you not think these are two different groups? That seems like the most common way to read it. They're just two different groups. Uh, It's interesting that the first thing he says in verse 9 is after these things, after the 144,000 have been sealed. Then he sees this group that's this vast multitude. Notice that the 144,000, we know the number there. What do we see about the second group? They can't be counted. There's so many of them that they cannot be counted. Clearly, again, what would appear to be a separate group. In the first case, with 144,000, they are specifically kind of pointed to as being Jews. In the second case, it says they're from all nations. So it begs the question, if what he's trying to say is that it's, it's Christians, these are all just, you know, this is all just the church, why does he refer to them at all as Jewish in the first place? Why muddy the waters? John certainly had the vocabulary and the theology to express what he wanted to say. He didn't need to call them 144,000 Jews and then one verse later call them people from all tribes, all tongues, all places. That seems silly. I would just throw this out there. I think it kind of is silly. Um, yeah, and let me read a little something here he's pointing out kind of how far some will 
will go in this. A, a, a famous Bible scholar uh, named Robert Mounts, he says, for example, uh, Mounts takes the position that in the accounts of both 144,000 and of the great multitude, the church is in view, but from two different vantage points. Yet he is forced to say that a Christian writer in identifying the church as the true Israel would probably not bother to list a detailed division of the 12 tribes. So even Mounts even admits that. That's not really probably something that would happen. You know, that, that it doesn't really make a lot of sense. In order to explain this phenomenon, Mounts has, has to suppose that John has borrowed a Jewish apocalyptic source in which the people of Israel are protected from some calamity by receiving the seal of God on their foreheads and that John has reapplied the material to the church as it enters the, the, the period of final turmoil upon the earth. In other words, he's kind of borrowing this from other you know, previous sources, which actually at times probably does take place here. But it, uh, one, one uh, uh, another commentator, he's even gone so far as well. When, when this happens, you know, usually a lot of that first part is deleted and it's adapted to the modern times, and John just forgot to do that here. So that's where you have to sink to that John's borrowing other material but forgot to, you know, delete the parts that made it look like Israel here. So that's how silly this gets sometimes. Uh, you know, we can. Move on to kind of some other things. Let me uh, read this section. A famous commentator, uh, you know, George Ladd, says, uh, Ladd confesses that the identity of the 144,000 is not an easy problem. The most natural way, and he's quoting Ladd here, to interpret them is to see them as Jewish people and define uh, in this symbolism the salvation of Israel. That seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Having confessed this is the most logical interpretation, Ladd, however, concludes there are good reasons to believe that the 144,000 John means to identify spiritual Israel, the church. This view is suggested by certain irregularities in the 12 tribes of Israel. So he takes the irregularities to suggest, well, God's actually talking about the church, even though there are irregularities in almost all the Old Testament passages. Make a lot of sense. Uh, again, John intends to say that the 12 tribes of Israel are not really Israel, but the true spiritual Israel, the church. R.H. Charles admits, for since the, tri the tribes are definitely mentioned one by one, and since the number sealed in each tribe is definitely fixed, even though symbolically, the 12 tribes can only have meant the literal Israel is the, is the original tradition. So that's Charles's opinion. However, Charles, of course, goes on to argue that this is not what the ultimate redactor had in mind. So that was the original position, but that's not really what he meant. You know? You guys get the idea. Now, I could go on and read a lot more of this, but I don't think we really need to. Um, it gets... Honestly, I, as I was reading all this, I was a little embarrassed. It's like, wow, how far do you have to go to, in order to say what's being said is not what's being said? But you can't admit that because it means your theological positions you brought to the table in the first place all fall apart. So uh, <laughs> this, this gets, gets a little hairy at times. Now what about the, illiter the literal approach? Uh, you know, are there problems for that? Well, there are problems that have been pointed out. 
As I discussed, some look at the fact that nobody knows who's in what tribe anymore, and they see that as a problem. Now, as I also said, I don't really see that as much of, a, of an issue since God, I, I, you know, I look at it this way. We're all, you know, we're all going to die, and we're going to go into the ground, and we're going to become dust. But yet the Bible tells us that in the resurrection, God's going to put our bodies back together and give us perfected bodies, but they'll still be our bodies. It'll, there'll be a literal resurrection. If God can accomplish that, I think he can figure out which Jews come from what tribe. I don't really see this as much of an issue. So, you know, again, that, it's kind of, it, you know, silliness. Um, another thing, is, and this is probably the most common one, is the references to spiritual Israel, that, that uh, the, the, the true circumcision, uh, you know, is the circumcision of the heart. And the Bible does talk about those things over and over again, that Israel rejected their Messiah uh, and, and God's turned to the, to the Gentiles and, and the true people of Abraham, the, 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 the you know, descendants of Abraham are not really his physical descendants, they're his spiritual descendants. The Bible does talk about that. There's no doubt. Now, Again, what, and it's usually Paul that's talking about that, but what Paul is talking about is not the, like I said, not the physical descendants. And he's not saying God has no future for the entity of Israel. He's simply saying Israel rejected their Messiah. Now, you know, Christians are coming to faith in Christ, and that is, is kind of the true spiritual descendants of Abraham. But people take that, you know, with these kind of replacement theologies, and they're like, God basically is done with Israel, and, you know, the church takes all the promises to Israel. Now, I want to look at a couple passages here. One of the most famous ones is in Romans chapter 2. People point to Romans chapter 2, where John speaks of, of these kind of things in the book of Romans. So we're going to spend a little bit of time here uh, at the end today in Romans. Because I want to look at, this is probably the most famous theological writing of the Apostle Paul. And at the end of Romans 2, Paul says this. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. People look at that and they say, see, Israel has kind of been replaced. But they don't follow John's logic throughout the book of Romans, and that's the problem. They take that out of context and they forget what he says all throughout the rest of the book. If you want to do something really interesting, I, I would really challenge, it's 16 chapters long, it's a long book, but I'd challenge you to do this. Sit down someday, you have a little time, and no, nothing to bother you. You have some quiet. And read through the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 1, to the last verse of chapter 16. I think you'll be fascinated. You will probably find that so much of, of what people talk about with Romans that's not the, the approach you're going to end up taking. Romans, he speaks of, his own, of the Jewish people often throughout the entire book of Romans. 
And Romans, in many ways, is a cry from the heart of John to the Gentiles to whom he's been called, saying to them, I, I, if I can in any way save some of my own flesh by provoking them to jealousy by what I give to you, then that is the cry of his heart. If you look over at chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, See, this is right after he's just what we've just read. He says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because of them were committed the oracles of God. But what if some of them did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. He says, does the fact that some of them have not believed, does that get rid of the faithfulness of God to his promises to them? John's reaction, or Paul's reaction, is certainly not. Let everybody else be a liar, but not God. God can't lie about his promises. He goes on and he talks about kind of this juxtaposition between Israel and, 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 and the Gentiles and, and the need for faith throughout much of the rest of the, of the book of Romans. But I want to take us to uh, one of the, the fascinating chapters in the book of Romans, and that is chapter 9. Greatly beloved by hardcore Calvinists. I've been questioned before, well, what do you do with... Romans chapter 9, since you're not a hyper-Calvinist, and my answer is always, well, I read chapters 1 through 8, and then I read chapter 9, and then I read chapters 10 through 16, and when I do that, I don't come up with anything that you're saying, you know, but that's a completely other issue. So in, in, in Romans 9, I want you to look at verses 1 through 5, as Paul starts on to this section about the election of Israel and God's right essentially to say, I, you know, my elect are those who respond by faith to me, not just one nation. God has that right. He has that sovereign right. And that is what essentially Romans 9 is about. Okay? But at the beginning of this, I want you to notice what he says. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed, blessed God. Amen. Paul begins this section on the sovereignty of God and why not all of Israel you know, at the time was going to be saved. Does that somehow nullify the greatness and the sovereignty of God? And, and that's largely what he's talking about in chapter 9. And he begins that to say, I am in continual grief for my own people. I would go so far as to be separated eternally from God myself if I could save all of them. 
That's, that's John's position about his people. He goes on then to talk about how still, though, it's about faith and not all will respond by faith, and none of that defeats a sovereign God. God is sovereign. He's allowed to do that if he wants. He can say, my people are going to be the ones who have faith in me. God's allowed to do that. He comes then to chapter 10. And I want you to look at at chapter, uh, oh, actually I want to read uh, the, the last couple verses of chapter 9, starting at verse 30 up to verse 2 of chapter 10. What shall we say then, after he's given this long kind of like theological discussion, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness? Why? Because they did not seek it by faith but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verses 1 and 2 of of chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he even gets at the end of this, and he's still saying, look, my desire is that they'll be saved someday. That's what I want, the saving of Israel. Now, if you get, again, he then goes on to to kind of discuss this and the need for faith. And I want to, and this is kind of shortening this somewhat, but I want to look at verse 21 of chapter 10 and then read uh, some of the beginning of chapter 11 here. He's quoting here from Isaiah 65 too. He says, but to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Spend a lot of chapter 10 talking about the need for faith and how Israel has rejected their Messiah and they have not had faith in God. And that's why they're in the position they're in. And he summarizes that by these Old Testament quotes. I think there's four or five of them here in a row. And I've just read the last of them to you from Isaiah 65 too. He goes then into chapter 11. And I want to start by reading verses up, up through verse 5. I say then God has cast away his people. Certainly, or has God cast away his people? So has he cast them away forever is the question. You know, are they done because of this? Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to, to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So he says, look, Israel as a whole has rejected God, but even now God has a remnant. He has people out there who have accepted him through faith. There's still a remnant of the Jews. But the, that leaves another question. Does that, what's that mean for the nation as a whole? Is God done with the nation 
as a whole, and there will just be this remnant. He goes on to answer that question. Look at verse, verses 11 through 29. This is a lengthy section, but I want to read this because I think this is important. We've read parts of it before when we did that kind of the theology section, but in answer to the whole question of who are the 144,000, can that possibly be Israel? My answer would be yes, it can, because there's precedent for it. And I want you to listen to what is said here. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But though their fall to provoke them to jealousy, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Jews. Notice what he says there. In order to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Jews. The reason for Gentile, or for, to the Gentiles, excuse me, the reason for Gentile salvation in itself is to provoke Israel to jealousy, to make them want the salvation that they have rejected. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and and save some of them. For if their being cast away as reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. But of unbelief, they, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. If God did not spare the natural branches, he, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you, will be cut, uh, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into, the, into their own olive tree? And here is where it's important. He's talking up to this point. Uh, he's using the idea of an olive tree, of Gentiles being a wild olive tree that's basically useless. And Israel being a, a good olive tree one that's, that's tamed and can be used to, to, to get olives, produce fruit. And he's saying branches were broken off from the Gentile olive tree and grafted into Israel's olive tree. But in order to do that, their branches had to be broken off. But how much more easily will it be to take their branches and graft them back in someday? That's the discussion. You guys get, get what's going on here? That's the imagery. Look at what he says in verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. 
that hardening in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So they have been hardened, he says, in part until the fullness of the Gentiles. All the Gentile harvest comes in. What happens then when the Gentile harvest is in? When the fullness of the Gentiles takes place? Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away on godliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The gifts and the callings of God, the the promises of God, are irrevocable. He cannot break His Word. The promises that He made, He is bound by His Word to keep. He's saying there's a time coming that all of Israel will be saved. Now, what does this mean? Of course, this is much, you know, greatly debated. Some even take the position that all Jews will go to heaven simply because of this. That is not what he's saying at all. He's been very clear the whole time that it, you have to have faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is how this takes place. But he is seeming to say that there will come a time in history where all the Jews that are left on the earth will come to a point of faith in Christ. At some point, probably, again, a remnant, a small amount will be left, and they will come to faith in Christ. That takes us back to the idea of the 144,000. Many scholars look at that, and they say that that is what we see happening in the 144,000. That we see God sealing His people for protection during the time of the tribulation because these are Jewish people who have come to faith as a part of the great persecutions and and all the things that are happening during the time of the tribulation. And they come to faith in Christ and God puts His seal on them and He says, you're mine. Now, there could, you know... There's a lot of other possibilities, things that we can talk about, but those are the two main possibilities for what the 144,000 are. My point is you cannot say that it's impossible for the Jews to, to, you know, to be the 144,000 because the Bible clearly states there's a time coming of salvation for the nation of Israel. That until that point there will be a remnant, but there's going to come a time in history where he says, and remember he says this is a mystery. Up until that point, it's a mystery, but he says all, the, all of them will be saved, and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of it, and I don't want you to be too high in your own opinion of yourselves. So could it be that what we see in the 144,000 is the pointing to at least the beginning of that time? Others see that maybe there's more coming even after that, that the 144,000 will just be the start of that, and I think that's probably probably correct but at the very least you have the 144,000 representing the nation itself so those are the two ideas of what the 144,000 are are they literally Israel or are they symbolic of the church I see honestly some of the scholarship for them being the symbolically the church just seems silly 
But there's pretty straightforward proof for the fact that Israel, the people of Israel, there's a salvation coming to. In fact, some of the scholars that hold to it being the church, even, even, they even mention that, well, this doesn't mean that Israel's not going to all be saved someday. They, they agree with that. They just don't think it's the 144,000. But, you know, that, that it, it seems to make more sense that that is what's talked about there. Look, we're out of time. Um, I knew that was a discussion that would take a long time. We, you know, we're only going to get through eight verses. But uh, if you guys have any questions, you want to talk to me about this, you know, look, hit me up afterwards. I would love to talk to you about it. Uh, you know, it, it's a fascinating, uh, you know, passage of Scripture that there's so much disagreement on. Uh, but it really is kind of a fascinating, uh, you know, section here. So uh, let's uh, close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord, and, and we just, uh, Father, I thank you for your graciousness, uh, for the fact that uh, you don't give up. Father, I think we as Gentile believers can rejoice in that. You didn't give up on us, uh, and I don't see you giving up on Israel either. Uh, Father, you, uh, you are doing a mighty saving work, and, and uh, I am so thankful for the fact that you chose to, to bring me and bring all of us into, into your family, Father. We are the beneficiaries of that grace, and so uh, we thank you so much, Lord, for, for everything that you've done and for all that you are, and we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.